Leviticus chapter 16. Sometimes we, uh, you know, we have resolutions at New Year. We're going to lose some weight. We're, we're going to do this or that. Uh, we're going to read through the scripture. We're going to cultivate a devotional habit. And so we, we start in the book of Genesis and we make it fine. And um, Exodus is pretty exciting with all the plagues that are taking place. And then we get into Leviticus. And it gets a little tough, a little tough. Well, listen, if you keep in mind, if we keep in mind that the, the Old Testament really anticipates and foretells, uh, for, uh, points forward to the coming glory and the coming fullness of grace that will be found in Christ, if we keep that framework in mind, we read the Old Testament in order to meet Christ, in order to feed upon the grace of God that's being symbolized in shadow and type in the Old Testament. It keeps us from getting so bogged down in the minute details. But the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament as uh, believers this side of Calvary, this side of the cross, we read the Old Testament back through the lens of the New Testament. We read it through Christ. And if we're, if we're not thinking about that, when we read the Old Testament, we read the book of Deuteronomy or we read the book of Judges or whatever, we read it in isolation and we forget that there were 50-something books that came after that. We read the Old Testament through the lens of the New and its more full, perfect fulfillment through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. After His resurrection, Christ is talking to the disciples and Luke chapter 24, and the scripture says that he opens their understanding that they might be able to comprehend in the scriptures his glory. And he says uh, in Luke 24, the scripture says that he takes them back through the law and the prophets and the Psalms so that they would understand the Old Testament's foretelling and its fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Well, recently, uh, October the 9th to be exact, was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You may have seen something in the paper, heard something on the news. Perhaps you know someone who actually observes Yom Kippur. Well, that is found in Leviticus 16. And it's a rich text because it anticipates in shadow form, in type form, the coming grace and the coming glory of Christ's sufficient work on our behalf. In fact, the, the tabernacle, the pattern of the tabernacle, all of the elements that are found in the tabernacle point forward to Christ. They anticipate His coming and His ministry and His sufficiency. The, the provision of sacrifices, the opening chapters of Leviticus with the sin offering and, and the guilt offering and the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fellowship or peace offering, all of that anticipates the coming work of the Lord Jesus. God provided a priesthood which anticipates that Christ is going to fulfill the work of a priest. This evening in one of the songs that we sang, we acknowledged in lyric form that Christ is our prophet, declaring to us the will of God and the way of salvation. We acknowledge that Christ is our priest. He offered himself up as a lamb without spot or blemish, as a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And he also intercedes for us in the presence of God. We sang in lyric form this evening that Christ is our King. That is, He rules over us. He governs us by His Word and by His Spirit. He's going to accomplish His good, acceptable, and perfect will in and through our lives. Well, having said all of that, 
Leviticus 16 contains some rich symbols, some rich images of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Would you read with me beginning in 16 verse 1 all the way through verse 22 and laying aside any semblance whatsoever of personal vanity. I grabbed my bifocals in order to read this print, which is exceedingly small. Um, It's not my eyes, though. I think it's the length of my arms. You'll you'll understand that, I'm sure. Uh, Leviticus 16, read with me, follow with me as we look at God's word in Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses... Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. In verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he may not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. In front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. In verse 15, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses. Notice the plural here, not uncleanness, but uncleannesses, the plural of the people of Israel because of their transgressions. Notice again the plural. With all their sins, three plurals identifying the depth, the condition of Israel's sin, uncleannesses, transgressions, and sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. In verse 17, No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. 
Then he shall go out to the altar that's before the Lord and make atonement for it and take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses, uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." When we read a text like that, it seems old and archaic and outdated. But it is full of gospel substance. It is good news to a people who desperately needed the gospel and needed grace. And it's good news to us as well. Because in these symbols and in these images, God is revealing that He is both just and that He is merciful. His justice and His mercy converge in a place of atonement. J.I. Packer in his great, great, great book, Knowing God, said at the cross of Christ at Calvary, the, the mercy of God and the justice of God joined hands there that the sinner might be pardoned and might be freed. That is, he might be liberated from both the record of his sin as well as the guilt and pollution of his sin. Well, in these patterns and in these Symbols, God reminds us that He is unchangeably, immutably, eternally just. And yet He's also a God who abounds in grace, who brims over with mercy and compassion toward His people. When God liberated uh, Israel from Egyptian bondage, He says to them in Exodus 19, for example, that I bore you on eagle's wings, I brought you to Myself. And then in Exodus 20, he begins to give them his law, his the revelation of his character and standards for behavior in the land that he would give them. And then it was as if the Lord knew that they would not live out the implications of the law. They would not practice and abide by the law of God revealed in the Ten Words of the Ten Commandments. And so he immediately instituted a place and a provision and a system by which this sinful law-breaking people could still be engaged with this infinitely perfectly holy God in both worship and service. And so the repeated theme in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, well, particularly from Exodus through Deuteronomy, is that the Lord is holy, that He is the thrice holy God, perfectly, unchangeably, immutably holy. All of the sin offerings and all of the burnt offerings And all of the guilt offerings and the peace offerings scream that God is a holy God. But all of those sacrifices also said to His people that I'm a merciful and compassionate God as well. Leviticus, the opening chapters, prescribe the way that all of these sacrificial offerings should be offered to the Lord. And God prescribed a priesthood through whom those sacrifices and those offerings could be given. But it's on this day in this place, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, recently celebrated on October the 9th, that those two things, the justice of God and the mercy of God, intersect 
with such rich implications for us. Notice uh, that in the text, God provided a place in which atonement was to be offered. In uh, the book of Exodus, just about as much attention is given to the prescription of the temple as to the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And we're not working, are we? Not at all? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to draw with black ink and uh, or black marker here, and hopefully you can see this. But when the when the Lord uh, prescribed the tabernacle, this I believe He prescribed that it would face east. This I believe is facing north. So let's pretend that it's facing east, shall we? Uh, when He prescribed a, a place, a tabernacle, He um, he had this design in mind. There was a there was a courtyard that en, encircled it all the way around, and uh, there was there was a, an entrance. Um, you, you can see I'm not an architect here. Uh, there was there was an entrance, and when you came in, there was a, an altar on which the sacrifices were offered. There was um, a, a basin, a laver, a place for the priests to bathe themselves. And uh, then you go, um, you go actually into the um, what was called the holy place, and then the most holy place. And in in this holy place was a seven-branched candlestick. There was a table with twelve loaves of bread on it. There was an altar of incense. And in this this most holy place. Um, Directly behind this was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the two tablets of law, the testimony of God's character, of God's faithfulness, the standard of behavior to which God was calling them as His redeemed people. And so on this particular day, the priest took a bull for himself and he goes in, he cuts the bull's throat, he takes some of the bull... He goes in to the holy place and he sprinkles blood on the ark. And then he comes back out and he burns a ram as a burnt offering, a symbol of entire consecration and dedication. And then he takes a goat for the sins of the nation and he cuts the throat of that goat, slits the throat, gathers some of the blood and goes in to the most holy place with all of his garments and his vestments on. And there he sprinkles blood on the Ark of the Covenant again for the sins of the nation. Blood is sprinkled seven times, signifying fullness of satisfaction and fullness of forgiveness. Now keep this in mind that inside this Ark was the law of God, the two tablets. The first half of the tablets dealt with the vertical relationship with God. God redeemed them and then said, this is how I want you to worship me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take my name in vain. You'll not misuse my name. It's a holy name. You will not bow down to any carved or graven images, anything in heaven, the earth, or under the earth. And you will remember the Sabbath day to set it apart, to sanctify it, to treat treat it as, as any other day. It's a day that's utterly unique and set apart and sacred. And so the law screamed guilt, 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 guilt. We have not worshipped you 
as you have called us to worship you. We have taken your name, treated it lightly, and misused it. We have engaged in idolatrous practices and worship, and we have failed to honor and keep your day holy. The law screamed guilt. And having broken the first table of the law, the first tablet of the law, then the horizontal implications of the law, that also broke down. So that the law that said, honor your father and your mother, and by implication, God-ordained authority, the law said guilt there as well. You've not honored the people that I've put in your life in positions of authority. You've not, you've not honored it in word, thought, or deed. And you've committed adultery, and you've murdered, and you've lied, and you've stolen, and you've coveted. So the law inside the place that symbolized God's dwelling place, a place set apart, entered only one time a year by one man, the high priest, all of that signifying the seriousness of sin, the solemnity of a, of a holy God. You don't enter His presence when you want to, how you want to, you come like I tell you, and when I tell you. All of that combined to speak volumes of the justice of God and of the holiness of God and the character of God. So the high priest would go in with all of his garments on. And what's not listed in the opening verses of this text is that he had a breastplate that on that breastplate, atop of the linen robes and the linen trousers, which signified purity, were four rows with three stones representing the 12 tribes engraved on each one of the stones was the name of a tribe of Israel so that the 12 tribes were represented here, indicating particularity. The priest went into God's presence to atone for the sins of these people, the names of the tribes written here. There was not names of Moabites and Amorites and Parasites on that priestly garment. It was the names of God's people. Atonement was made for them. And so the law screamed guilt. It said to the high priest, you're guilty. And God's law demanded justice. The soul that sins, God says through the prophets, dies. He would later say in the book of Romans through the apostle Paul in, in Romans uh, 6.23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. And so the priest comes in to pour blood upon the law of God to appease the justice of God, to satisfy the wrath of God. In Leviticus 17, what's so unique about blood? It's not the type of blood. It's not O positive, B negative, AB. That's not the significance of it. Leviticus 17 suggests that the significance of it in verse 11, Leviticus 17, 11, is that the life of the flesh is in the blood. What that blood represented was the death of one to pay the price for the broken law of God. And so the priest went in and the law said, I'm guilty. And the blood of another, a substitute, a sacrificial animal, covered the sin of the priest. And then the law screaming guilt against the nation. And we, we read it and I emphasized it when I read it. The plurals that are in the text, uncleannesses, describing a case of moral defilement, a condition, not an act, but a state of being, morally defiled and unclean, screamed guilt. And then the transgressions, the overstepping of the bounds that God had prescribed boundaries for life and that overstepped the bounds. 
and iniquities, all that God had given to them. It, it literally means to twist or pervert. What God had given them, they had twisted it, and it had been perverted and bent out of shape. And then all their sins, screaming guilt, guilt, guilt. But the high priest would come in with the blood of another, and the blood of the other would cover. And it's interesting, this, this ark resembled something of the footstool of a king. It was gold, overlaid with gold. And on top of that ark in which the tablet of the law was contained was something called a mercy seat. A mercy seat. Now listen, this is where the justice of God and the holiness of God intersected. In a place of atonement, there was mercy. And everything about the Day of Atonement, everything about Yom Kippur points forward to another. It points forward to the richness of Christ's work. Christ would come as a priest and He would not offer the blood of bulls and goats. He would offer Himself as a lamb without spot and blemish to really and truly make atonement for sin so that you and I could be forgiven and freed, the justice of God having been satisfied. Isaiah anticipating 750 years in advance of the birth and the crucifixion of Christ in Isaiah 53 says that He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity, the twistedness, the perverseness of us all. And Christ appeared not in an earthly tabernacle made with human hands, but Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9, pointing back to this, says that Christ offered Himself once and appeared in the presence of God with His blood and made a full and final sufficient atonement for sin. So in this Old Testament observance then, it literally oozes the grace of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God. And where does it come together? It comes together in a place where justice has been satisfied. I think sometimes we have an idea that that forgiveness is so free, so easy, so seemingly inconsequential that we realize that God forgives my sin and forgives your sin because His justice, His case against you has been satisfied by another. Because another died in your place. Another lived the life you could not live. And another died the death that you and I deserve to die. And He went into the very throne room of God in heaven and presented himself and offered himself there as a lamb. Genesis chapter 3, the Lord in chapter 2 had said to Adam, the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And then the first place the gospel is preached is in a place of judgment. Adam and Eve hiding behind uh, whatever had, had uh, tried to cover themselves, and, and our covering is never adequate in God's holy presence. Oh, the folly of imagining that our works and our efforts and our status and our performance and our achievement could ever withstand the scrutiny of a holy God in a place of judgment. But God in mercy comes in and preaches the gospel. He promises a coming Redeemer in the seat of the woman. And then He covers them with skins, indicating that there was the death of another so that the sinning pair could be covered, their shame and guilt could be covered. So 
the first sacrifice effective for the first two fallen people, Adam and Eve. On the day of uh, Passover in Exodus, they were instructed to take a lamb for a house, about ten people. Take a lamb, cut its throat, put the blood over the doorpost, and when I see the blood, God promised, I will pass over in judgment over you. And then on the Day of Atonement, it was blood not for a couple, not for a family, but for a nation that had gone astray. Now get this. John himself a priest. John the Baptist was a priest, the son of Zacharias. We forget that. John was a prophet, but he was also a priest. And John, standing on the banks of the Jordan, sees Jesus coming one day. And what does he say in John chapter 1? He says, Behold the Lamb of whom? The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the what? The world. God has provided a lamb, not for a couple in a garden, not for a family in a tent, and not for a defiled nation on the Day of Atonement. God is finally, all of those other sacrifices, finally pointing forward until God incarnate comes, willing to humble Himself and satisfy His own justice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So sufficient is the work of Christ, so effective in terms of its extent, that Revelation chapter 5 pictures the risen Christ in heaven's glory, surrounded by myriads of angels in adoration and worship. And the appearance of Him, John says in Revelation 5, is as of a lamb having been slain. There He stands. Sometimes we sing, and I love this this hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. There's a, I think it's the third stanza in that song, says, His, fly, his five wounds for me do plead. Dear friends, you and I have in the presence of God Himself the infinitely, perfectly just and gracious God. One who appears in His presence and says, though we are uh, iniquitous and though we continue to fall short of the glory of God, there's one who pleads for us and says, Father, I have satisfied all the judgment that would be poured out upon them. Justification a fancy theological word, is nothing but the judgment of the last day of acquittal carried forward in time so that the moment you believe, the moment the Holy Spirit awakens your heart and brings you from death to life and faith in Christ, that moment you are just as justified as if you had just left this life and entered the next. You'll never be more justified than you are in that moment. Paul writing in Romans 8 verse 1 says, There's therefore now no, now, no condemnation in Christ. And why is it that you can be free? And why is it that I can be free? Because Christ satisfied the judgment of God and the justice of God by offering Himself as the sacrifice for sin. Now, turn over to 1 John and we'll, we'll quit. Let's just take a quick look at how this plays out in the New Testament in terms of fulfillment. Everything the Day of Atonement, pointing forward to the coming work of Christ, everything from the, the priest to the sacrifice and the effect of the sacrifice, all of it pointing forward to Christ. In 1 John chapter 1, 
in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 8, John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, and the word confess, homologeo, homo meaning same, legeo to say, it's just simply saying the same thing with God about me. I'm agreeing with God about me. I'm not blame shifting. I'm not denying. I'm not covering up. I'm agreeing with God about me. If we confess our sins, I agree with God about me. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So between the confession, there's either, there's either self-deception, we're deceived about ourselves, or we're basically telling God that he's a liar. Sandwiched between that is being honest about yourself. And we can be honest about ourselves because chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen, this word propitiation is the Greek word for the Hebrew word mercy seat. In other words, 1 John chapter 2 is saying, I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin, you can be honest about it. You can be honest about it because Christ has become the place of mercy for you. Judgment has been shielded. Forgiveness has been granted. And you can be honest about your heart. You can be honest about your life. You can be transparent before me because you faced already all the judgment you will ever face. Another stepped in, the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust, and took what was coming to you. So be honest about your life. Be honest about your heart. Now the glory of this, guys, is this. Rivers of blood were poured out on the mercy seat and at the base of the altar in the Old Testament. Rivers of blood. And every drop of it, every drop of it, every sacrifice, every sin offering, every guilt offering, every day of atonement screamed for the coming of Christ. And now He has come. And we rejoice in the fact that we have received a sufficient covering for our sin. It motivates and compels our worship. It's it, When we really begin to grasp this, we're able to sing with, with fresh gusto, with fresh enthusiasm and joy. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive Him. Forgive Him, they cry. Oh, forgive. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears Him pray, His dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of His Son. The Spirit answers to the blood. The Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I'm born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I, draw, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, I cry. See, the takeaway of this is simply that we're able to worship the Lord and serve Him with joy and gladness as sons, as daughters, as children, 
as members of the Father's family whose sins and wretchedness and uncleanness and twistedness and iniquity has been fully satisfied so that God can now freely forgive. These are shadows of Christ in the day of atonement and how rich and full is the reality to us this evening. May God's name be forever praised that He did not sacrifice His integrity. He did not sacrifice His holiness. He did not diminish His justice. He satisfied it all, but He can still freely forgive you because another has satisfied the requirements of the law. Father, as we close in prayer tonight, we're grateful for the richness of and sufficiency of Christ. He really is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. All other ground is sinking sand, but we're grateful that by the work of your Holy Spirit, we are this evening found in Christ. Lord, we worship you and adore you and love you for all that you've done for us in Christ. Might those uh, truths work themselves into our lives that we live as a freed people, as a forgiven people, that we live as spirit-empowered followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.